This is Thinking in Public, a program dedicated to intelligent conversation about frontline theological and cultural issues with the people who are shaping them. I'm Albert Mogul, your host and president of the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky. Economics has often been described as the dismal science. Well, you wouldn't know that by talking with Arthur Brooks. He's been president of the American Enterprise Institute since January of 2009. Previously, he served as the Louis A. Bantle Professor of Business and Government Policy at Syracuse University. He studied economics, math, and languages, eventually earning bachelor's and master's degrees in economics and a Ph.D. in public policy from the Rand Graduate School. His newest book is The Road to Freedom, his 10th. Arthur Brooks, welcome to Thinking in Public. Thank you, Dr. Moeller. It's a pleasure to be with you. I've been a fan of yours for many years, and always look forward to talking to you. Well, likewise, I really appreciate your work, and, and I appreciate the fact that we get to talk about something that I think uh, evangelical Christians in particular often neglect to think about, and that is the science, uh, the academic discipline uh, of economics. And uh, I did mention that it's often referred to as the dismal science. A lot of people seem to have an allergy to dealing with economics. One of the things that I think you've communicated quite clearly is that if you really care about human flourishing, you care about economics. That's right. You know, one of the reasons that I came to AEI, the American Enterprise Institute from, from Syracuse, was because I was so frustrated with the fact that we weren't able in the public policy sphere to make the, the authentic moral case for economic freedom. I saw again and again that people would separate their, their moral convictions from their economic policies and their economic philosophy or, or just the way that they would deal personally with economic issues. And that seemed to me to be a big opportunity, a big sort of entrepreneurial opportunity to help people think differently about money and about economic issues. In, In point of fact, Everything that we do economically exhibits our values, uh, what we spend our money on personally, the policies that we advocate in the public sphere. These are deep expressions of our values. And if we try to relegate these things to simply nothing more than financial issues and and disconnected from our moral lives, we make big, big errors, I think, which have consequences on our personal lives and the lives of others. I was talking to a biomedical ethicist, a physician, a few months ago, and he made the very interesting point. He said, it's very difficult for me to communicate adequately to young physicians and to physicians in training that every single moment of their professional lives is deeply moral. They will never make a medical decision that isn't simultaneously a moral decision. And he said, this is a generation that simply has a very difficult time recognizing that. They want to think of this as a practice they don't want to think of it as uh, as, as a moral discipline. Uh, in your writings, you have very consistently, more or less, given the same advice to young uh, economists. There is no no moment, uh, there is no act, there there is no theory that isn't laden with morality. That's true, and the most extraordinary literature that's forming these days in in the world of neurology is looking at a part of the brain called the medial prefrontal cortex, and just in that's a fancy way of talking about the part of your brain right behind your forehead. That's an extraordinary part of the brain because it's the most modern and human parts of the brain. It it processes, neurologists see see that it processes processes the types of cognitions that make us uniquely human, Our, our, our ability to make material judgments, our executive functions, you know, if you decide which way to go in traffic in a split second based on the stimuli around you, and also your moral judgments are made there. So the most modern human executive part of your brain also is dominated by moral judgments. And what this really tells us and what the, those who study this are telling us more and more today is that we're wired to be moral animals. Morality actually will even dominate in the face of big material judgments. In other words, if you are deciding whether or not to think about material things or a moral judgment, the moral judgment will always win out. That's how important it is to us. Now, Al, for you and me, we know that we're wired to be moral creatures because we're made in God's image. And God, of course, is the king of moral judgments, is the author of the moral sentiments that we feel. But even for people who don't share our beliefs, it's very interesting to understand that there's a physical connection between moral judgments and brain processes. That's why it's so important to understand that there truly is nothing that's not moral. Well, raising the whole issue of neuroscience, uh, you know, again, raises a, a whole host of issues that I would love to discuss. 
But just to think about what it means to to try as a Christian to come to terms with uh, the morality of economics, uh, I'm often pressed on this. And, uh, you know, Arthur, you're the economist. I'm a theologian. And I I always want to come back to the fact that the basic biblical worldview in economics is that uh, all of our lives is to be lived Godwardly, that, that is, under the glory of God. And that uh, as creatures made in his image, living for his glory, we are to seek to, uh, to contribute to human flourishing. And the economic principles that at least I see in the scriptures are such things as the, the connection between labor and reward uh, and, and the fact that uh, a just economic system would reward labor, uh, would reward investment. Uh, the, the scripture is very clear about that, would reward savings and thrift. And uh, the right kind of economic system would also uh, be, be that which would uh, discriminate against such things as those moral opposites, such as sloth and recklessness and uh, and uh, profligate spending and all the rest of this. And, of course, the Bible is also very clear in, in, in terms of warnings about debt. Now, that doesn't imply necessarily uh, an economic system we put a label on, but wouldn't you agree that every economic theory has to come to terms with those same basic moral issues? Absolutely. And that's the reason, incidentally, that the study of economics originally took place in departments of theology. So Adam Smith, who wrote The Wealth of Nations, is the, the most important economist of modern times, although he wrote his great book in 1776 in Scotland. I mean, this is what really set the ship a sail of modern free market economics. He was technically in a department of, of, of theology and philosophy, because this was considered to be so fundamental. And one of the things that they would grapple with routinely that we've kind of forgotten today, because it's become such a science of, of, of numbers at this point, one of the things that we've forgotten but they remembered was what our founders remembered, which is that we're, there's a covenant between, uh, between God and man and between our founders and us and between us and future generations that man is endowed by our Creator with the unalienable rights of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Now, how do we, how do we execute the pursuit of happiness? How do, we, how do we find our own happiness? And the answer is, in a commercial republic, and in, in the, the days that we spend full of work, and uh, I mean, most of us spend most of our day on work, sure. the way that we pursue our happiness is by earning our success. And we earn our success when we create value in, in our lives and value in the lives of others. And there's literally only one system, and this is really well documented by social scientists, by economists, by social psychologists, that when people feel that they're being treated fairly insofar as they're keeping the rewards of hard work and innovation, that they're being penalized when they're uh, in, working insufficiently, when they, when they feel that their skills are matching their passions and entrepreneurship and hard work are celebrated, I mean, the only system that does these things where they can earn their success quite literally is free enterprise. It's a miracle what it's done for the world, how it's pulled people out of poverty, and how it's given people the dignity of feeling like they're earning their success. And to my way of thinking, that's not just moral. It's an intrinsically morally good thing to do, something that I believe is my apostolate as a Christian to be able to pursue. I want to track so many of these things, but going back to Adam Smith, and you were right, he never saw himself as an economist, even though he was the father of the disciplines in a very real way. He he did see himself as an ethicist, uh, concerned with the moral sentiments and and with the the right arrangement of society. But it also began with the individual. So let me ask you to define something. And and when I talk to an economist, I love to ask this question. Define the economic human being for me, what uh, Adam Smith called the economic man. Who is that? Yeah, homo economicus, as it were. Today, it's considered as somebody who is completely 100% rational, that is affected entirely by monetary-based and articulated incentives. But the truth of the matter is that homo economicus is simply somebody who is well-ordered in his passions, according to Adam Smith, who has well-ordered morals and as such is equipped to be able to deal with a system that treats him with the dignity of the individual. Now, this is really important to keep in mind. Adam Smith's first book, Before the Wealth of Nations, was written 17 years earlier, and it was The Theory of Moral Sentiment. Absolutely. 
He said that all of us, and we know this today, you talk about this constantly on your program and in your writing, Al, that, that people have to be prepared culturally and morally to be able to handle a system of freedom. Will we dignify our freedom or, or won't we? And, and Adam Smith asked this very question. So homo economicus, properly understood, is somebody who's morally well-ordered and balanced and as such can earn his own success and earn the dignity of his freedom. Well, you know, one of the most crucial issues to Adam Smith, as you've well indicated, was the fact that, uh, well, let's just take the, the stereotype that many people have of, uh, uh, of the kind of individual that a free market is both made for and, uh, and you might say works for. And uh, they would think it's a person who looks out for merely his own interests. Adam Smith had exactly the opposite understanding. He's a person who takes care of his own interests in order that he can contribute to human flourishing. That's right. That's right. You, you, uh, and, and you have it exactly right. We tend to take the causality in the wrong direction. <clears throat> we say that since our, we assume that our passions are unbridled, <laughs> that we're going to be immoral, we're going to be greedy, we're going to be unfair with each other, we're going to hurt each other, and therefore we need to bound these passions with a very, very strong government that doesn't allow markets to be free such that we won't take advantage of each other. But this is, this is a completely disordered view. I mean, it's, it's not just ahistoric, it's actually overtly immoral. It's wrong to treat people as just calculators who have no moral compass. We're, we're made to be moral. I mean, the, this is what the neuroscience is finding. This is what our religious views tell us and what we know is written on our heart to be correct. And so, therefore, since we we understand intrinsically what's right, and we, we should strive for that, we shouldn't assume that people are going to be greedy and nasty, and that we have to treat them in a statist fashion. We should work all the time, as far as I'm concerned, to lead each other to a more moral life, such that people can dignify their own freedom. And then we have to work for an economic system that sets people free. You have taught economics in a major American university. You are an economist uh, that uh, is is who is very articulate and uh, and very much engaged in the public square. You are in constant conversation with other economists. Let me just ask you a blunt question: How many who are currently today teaching and practicing in the area of, of uh, economics uh, really concerned with these moral questions, or is it something that in the day by day interplay? Of, uh, of the culture and the discipline that really doesn't play so much a part. I, I, I have to tell you, sometimes I cannot tell myself. <laughs> you know, it's a, the answer is shockingly few people are thinking, th- thinking through the full ramifications of what it means to be an economist today, but that's actually true of most any profession. You know, I strongly believe that, that work is prayer, that all of our lives we're, we're living an apostolate to, to, our, to God. And, and that means it doesn't really matter if you're an economist or you're selling popsicles out of a truck or you're a, a construction worker or uh, the president of the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. We all are, are working in our own way with a mission, and a mission to express ourselves and to express uh, something that is for the good of man and for, for the glory of God. And so as such, if we don't think about it in this way, we're making the same mistake as economists who think that it's all about the numbers and all about the money. Um, in, in fact, none of our jobs is all about the numbers and all about the money. It's all about, as, and this is actually in, in the words of somebody who is really great, important influence in my life, Johann Sebastian Bach, the greatest composer of music who ever lived. He was a very serious Christian. I mean, he, obviously I didn't know him because he died in 1750. <laughs> but he, he, you know, when he was asked, why do you write music? He said, simple. I do it for the good of man and the glory of God. If all of us could live our lives and perform our jobs for those two simple reasons, whether we be economists or not, think how much better the world would be. Absolutely. So when we think about it in those terms, Arthur, if you think about what it means uh, to, uh, to, to try to create an economic system that would meet these moral expectations, that would reward the right kinds of, of moral choices, that would, that would inculcate the right kind of moral virtues – Let's just say you're starting a society from ground zero. Where would you begin? I would start by looking at what dignifies individuals the most and allows them to earn their success. And I would say, hmm, what actually will, will, will 
allow people to feel that they have created value in their lives and the lives of other people. They're generating inherent value. They're not being given something that they didn't earn. And, and as such, what I would allow them to do is to develop their talents, to make their own decisions, to live according to the consequences of their actions to the extent that they're not indigent. And then I would let market the, effectively what, what we now today call markets decide how the outcomes are distributed. I wouldn't worry about equality of outcomes. It, beyond, as I said, the most abject poverty, but I would work diligently, I would work assiduously to create a lot of mobility, a lot of opportunity for people so that people really could get ahead. I would allow people to decide for themselves how they want to express themselves and decide for themselves whether they want to work more, whether they want to work less, whether they want to work in areas that are highly rewarded financially or highly rewarded along another dimension with respect to how much time they spend with their children or how much time they spend on vacation. In other words, I would have a, a market system that's not asking people simply to redistribute wealth for the sake of some kind of twisted understanding of envy and fairness. I'd rather I would allow people to express themselves as they see fit according to their hard work, their passions, their skills, and their talents. And that's kind of like the free market system as we envision it. And that's, incidentally, Al, the system that's most fair. You know, we hear all the time today, particularly from the President of the United States, that it's not fair that some people have more than others. But that's not the real definition of fairness, as most Americans understand it, as I understand it, and the way I would set it up in my ideal economic system. Real fairness means rewarding hard work and merit and punishing bad behavior. And the only system that does that consistently is the free enterprise system, as, particularly as long as people are well-grounded and well-developed in their morals. You know, something very interesting came to me when I was reading a, a very good history of the American labor movement. And uh, again, a topic that could uh, could spawn all kinds of, of good conversation here. But one of the things it pointed out is that many of the labor contracts that were were pressed upon American business in, in especially the second half of the 20th century were uh, were those that uh, that wanted to eliminate all incentives to more work. Uh, in other words, wanted to equalize pay so that it really didn't matter if you if you made eight you know uh, car doors a, a a day or two, you got paid the same thing. But the interesting thing was, of course, that the economists and others looking at that said, yes, but the labor unions themselves can't run that way. You know, so yeah, you, had, right. you had labor organizers showing up saying, look, I can get 50 people to a meeting. Others saying, I get 500 people to a meeting. Who got the job? And, yeah, and it, right. it, it is because we naturally gravitate that way. I saw another study just recently indicating that uh, – and I think you covered a very similar issue in your, in your new book, uh, The Road to Freedom. If you just ask people, okay, here are two people. Uh, I think in your book you used two secretaries. And, uh, and and one's paid a good deal more than the other. People say that's not fair. But then you demonstrate that the one who is paid more actually produces a lot more and uh, and and has has brought a lot more to the position. And then the vast majority of Americans say, well, that is fair. So it right. turns out fairness just – as I often say theologically because this, this creates all kinds of havoc in theology when people say God has to be fair. Well, what's fair? Fair works if you've got two moms dealing with two toddlers in a sandbox – it doesn't work in complex human moral situations. Yeah. Fairness is uh, – there are a lot of different definitions for it and here among the humans. There is this idea of reciprocity. If I do something for you, it's only fair that you do something for me. There is uh, redistribution where if you have more than me, it's only fair that you give me some of yours. But by far the most important definition of fairness and one that is really the uh, – how the, the Western world became so powerful was this ethical understanding of fairness as something based on merit. And the truth of the matter is that we've gotten away from meritocratic fairness, despite the fact that most Americans still feel it, because we've moved into a, 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 part, a part of our, I guess, our civilization, you know, where we've moved beyond being hungry for earning our success. We've, all, we've, also, we've gotten so complacent, particularly in recent years, that what we've done is we've moved beyond trying to win the competition from day to day, not just against each other, but against circumstances, to trying to short-circuit the competition. So the key idea for people to keep in mind is competition. You know, we, we hear a lot about crony capitalism and, you know, people who are gaming the system. Those are simply people that don't want to compete, and so they want to short-circuit the competition by shutting it down. Effectively, every economy, um, every place where people are actually uh, interacting with each other is made up of two kinds of people, people who 
want to win the competition by following the rules and people who want to short-circuit the competition. And today, more and more, we have a government, we have a, a ruling class, we have an elite uh, group of leaders, we, in both on Wall Street and on Pennsylvania Avenue, who want to shut down the competition. They want to take away our ability to be competitive, to strive, to get ahead, to create. This doesn't mean we, competition doesn't mean we want to kill each other. It doesn't mean that we want to, you know, the New York Yankees don't want to bomb the bus of the, uh, of the Boston Red Sox. That's not competition at all. But they want to win fair and square. They want to be rewarded for their merit. And if they're rewarded for their merit, we really know that that's what's fair and that's the kind of society we want. The thought of economics as intrinsically moral, in fact, more moral than almost anything else we can imagine, is something that most Americans don't think about. They look at the Wall Street Journal or they listen to an economic report and they think it's just math, it's just numbers, it's just money. It's never just any of those things. It's about individual human beings, the decisions they make, and the economic conditions of their lives that are the result of moral decisions and, for that matter, moral energy. Arthur, we were talking about fairness. Uh, one of the dominant theories of fairness, that uh, which is labeled justice in many situations, that has been uh, very, very dominant in the American Academy is that suggested by the philosopher John Rawls. And, uh, and, and Rawls suggests that uh, it's not just equality of, of status or equality of opportunity. It has to be equality of outcome uh, for there to be fairness. And, of course, the problem with the Rawlsian theory of justice is not only at the beginning in terms of the wrong understanding of, of human beings – but quite frankly, it doesn't deal with the fact that human beings actually want different things. Uh, some want to work really hard and, and live in a big house. Uh, uh, some want to have a lot of time unencumbered by work. Uh, some want to, uh, to live the life of a bohemian artist. Uh, others want to live the life of a Wall Street mogul. You know, uh, it, it seems to me that a moral economic theory has to come to terms with the understanding that human beings actually have uh, incommensurate, very different and diverse hopes and dreams and aspirations. So true. And, you know, really the most immoral thing that we can do to people is treat them as if they were all the same. I mean, if you want to have people in abject misery and you're the ruler of a country, make sure that nobody can get ahead, that nobody's rewarded for working hard. Make sure that somebody who works hard, you take away what they, what they earned and make sure that people who didn't work, you give them something that they didn't earn. You know, that's actually, there's actually a, a term for this and it's called learned helplessness. This comes from Martin Seligman, who's a psychologist at the University of Pennsylvania and, and his work shows that when you take things away from people who earned them and you give them to people who didn't, both sides, both the recipients and the people who have been penalized, they learn helplessness. They become passive, they give up, and they become depressed. In other words, it degrades all of us. It degrades people who have their goods and services and their income taken away, and those people who become dependent on a kind of welfare. Now, I'm not saying that people shouldn't have any relief. In, in fact, we have poverty in this country, and we have all kinds of reasons to give people relief. This is a, a basic fundamental of Christian charity, Absolutely. of course. But, but, but beyond that, the idea of taking relief and turning it into dependency, treating people the same by redistributing to the, for, the, for the goal of equal outcomes is such an immoral, materialistic, depressing way to treat humanity, as opposed to treating them like individuals, as, as we believe God treats us. You know, Arthur, there's something else that's missing, though, I think, from, uh, from most secular conversations about economics, and that is the Christian understanding that we live in a fallen world. Yeah. Uh, and in a fallen world, uh, people are not always incentivized by the right things. They don't always have the, the right aspirations. As I said, it's all right to have different aspirations, but there are some, there are some aspirations that are not Godward. They're, they're not right. They're sinful. Uh, there are some behaviors that, uh, that are inherently sinful, intrinsically wrong. Uh, economics has to speak to that, too, uh, in, in terms of, uh, of creating a set of rules that, uh, that, that in a fallen world attempts, at least, to maximize human flourishing. That's true. And, and we have to remember that capitalism or free enterprise is simply not a, a substitute for well-ordered moral behavior. It isn't. In, in fact, without a well-ordered moral behavior among people interacting with each other and, and, and the way that they deal with themselves privately, 
you, it doesn't matter what your economic system is. It will become corrupted. It will be used. It will be used to, to bad ends. One of the, the most common fallacies I hear about capitalism is that it, it, it incentivizes people to be greedy. But, of course, that's nonsense. The problem with greed is not capitalism. The problem with greed is the fallenness of man, as, as, you, as you say quite correctly. And the places where I've seen greed do the most damage to the most people is not even in capitalist societies. It's in socialist societies where people can capture the government, where people can use the government to their own ends and redirect all the resources to themselves. I mean, the, the horrible greed and inequities that happened in the Soviet Union before the wall came down were just astonishing. I've never seen anything like it. So the problem of greed, the problem of fallenness is one of culture, it's one of morals, and it's one of our own hearts. And if we want free enterprise to dignify us appropriately, we have to deal with these issues first. Well, and you mentioned the Soviet Union. All you have to do is to look to Russia today uh, to see a market that is without moral controls, uh, in in which you also have a disaster. Many people associate that with capitalism. That isn't capitalism. That isn't free market economics. Uh, That's simply uh, autocratic uh, economic exploitation. No, that's right. And, and, and again, this is as much a lesson, not for the left, as it is simply for anybody who might tell any of us, sell us a bill of goods to say that unmitigated capitalism is the answer to all of our problems. That's not right. It's, a, it's an economic system. It's a, it's a machine. It's like a car. If you don't know how to drive and you don't have a you know, proper sense of the appropriate rules of driving, you can do great evil with your car. <laughs> and, and it doesn't matter what kind of car you're driving, as a matter of fact. And that's the reason that we have to keep these, all of these issues in perspective and remember what matters most first. Okay, so let me throw out some concepts, some, some words, and ask you to kind of flesh them out for us in, in economic terms, in the moral context in which you see them. Uh, let's say the first one is is work. Uh, human beings were made, uh, are made in the image of God, and uh, and designed for work. So, h- how do you understand the morality of work? Is work something that is simply uh, a-, a curse we have to live with, or is it or is it an opportunity to show the glory of God? Work is an inherent good. Work is a way that we can express ourselves. It's a way that we can express our talents and passions in a constructive way. And furthermore, it's something that will create positive value. There aren't that many things that people can do to create positive value in in our lives and the lives of others every single day. But work is what allows us to do that. Recall that, you know, the beginning of the book of Genesis talks about God working. (laughs) And it says God made us in his image, therefore we are Man is made to work. But, you know, that and, is a key point of, uh, of biblical misunderstanding for many Christians, because they know just enough to get into trouble in Genesis 1 through 3, and they know that a part of the curse in Genesis 3, God's response in judgment to human sinfulness, is uh, the difficulty of work, uh, the difficulty of toil. Uh, but the difference between toil and work is, is seen in the fact that uh, long before sin, uh, you know, in terms of the order of creation, God gives human beings the dominion ordinance, and uh, they were to work the garden. And uh, so work itself is a part of what it means to be made in God's image. It's a, it, as you said, it is a good thing in and of itself. Incredible gift. I mean, those of us, and, and, and incidentally, the way that, 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 uh, that the incredible gift of work can give us the maximum amount of joy is when the talents that God gives us and the skills that we've, that we've been able to develop in our lives can come together in a way that we can match these things. And there's literally only one economic system ever created that maximally allows us to match our skills with our passions, and that's free enterprise. Markets where we can actually look for a, it's extraordinary, look for a job that we're good at and that we like. And it's such a funny thing compared to, to years past where, you know, Al, if you and I, 200 years ago, had been born where we were and our parents were farmers, why, we'd be farmers. Exactly. There, there would have been no other choice. Uh, as a matter of fact, in the year 1800 in America, the average American never left a 20 mile radius of the site of his birth. So what do you think he was doing? Well, he was doing what his father was doing. But you and I, I mean, we can, do, we can do what we feel we're best suited to do for the good of man and the glory of God. What an incredible miracle. What a blessing. Free Enterprise made that possible. Absolutely. And by the way, many people think that, for instance, you go back to 1800, this meant that the uh, – and my, my father was a, a – is, I should say, still living, thankfully, uh, but, but wasn't as – in his working career, mostly a grocer, a manager of a, of a grocery store, and uh, 
so I would have been a grocer, I guess. But you, you look at that and you realize it, it's not just for the lower, you know, the, uh, the, the, uh, the, the common levels of society. It was also for the elites. I mean, if you were the first son of, of nobility, you inherited the, the realm, so to speak. If you were the second son, you went into the priesthood. Uh, you know, it was all scripted for you at every level of society. Yeah, that's right. And we've been unchained uh, in this way by the free enterprise system, something that we've been really blessed with. And, and we, we throw it away. We play with it at our peril. Think about how, how work can so easily become more like toil. You know, it's just why it's a blessed thing to do something that sets people free, not just ourselves, but others, such that they can express themselves so creatively with their work. Now, that doesn't not, it's not to say, I don't want anybody listening to us to say, well, you know, what's this guy Brooks talking about, that everybody must love their job every single second of every single day? Well, <laughs> of course not, and I don't either, every single, and I know you don't either every single second of every day, but the point is we're able to make choices. And by being free, we can be more expressive. And when we're more expressive, we can create more value and dedicate it to God. And uh, that's, yeah. you know, that's worth living for. Well, I think also beyond that, and, and you've, you've pointed to this, we want to believe that our lives are meaningful. And one of the ways we know that our life is meaningful is by the work that we do. And, uh, and by the way, that means that work has to be defined a larger than job, because there are people who do not have a job who nonetheless are working uh, which is, you know, to, 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 to say, you know, do you have a working mom? If, if she's a mom, she's working. Uh, oh, absolutely. <laughs> and, and, and so we, we have to understand that it's, you know, and this is where, uh, you know, and, and the, the Protestant may have to come back and say this is where the, the Lutheran notion of vocation comes out so clearly. And it's just, you know, to be human is to be given a vocation. And a vocation is something you do not only for your own good, uh, but you are fulfilled in it. You do it for human flourishing and ultimately for the glory of God. That's right. Well, one one other point is that in studies that we've conducted of this concept of earned success, we found that the happiest people say they've earned their success, but they're very, very loose on the denomination of the rewards. So very few people actually talk about measuring their earned success in dollars. A lot of them talk about it in terms of their kids being happy or creating beautiful art or helping other people or working in their community or just how much value they create in their jobs. Or And, and very few people, it's extraordinary, talk about money per se. And that's an important thing to keep in mind. God gives us all kinds of currency of value that we're going to create. That's the reason that, you know, I, I feel right now I'm in my office and I'm talking to you and this is my job and it gives me joy and I feel like you and I are creating, uh, earning our success together. And my wife right now is with my kids and she's earning her success right now too. And my kids are doing their homework, I hope. And they're earning their success too. We're all doing it in different ways. We all have different vocations and this is a great thing. Well, it is, but that leads me exactly to where I want to go, because you just gave this beautiful picture of of your family life uh, and, and your wife and your children, each doing what uh, each in his station or her station is is called now to do. And so, Arthur, I want, I want to talk some uh, – get into some areas that uh, that would make a lot of economists very uncomfortable. <laughs> but Okay. One of the most important insights, I, I think, uh, uh, both morally and theologically, but also economically, is the importance of the institutions that God has given us that lead to human flourishing. So I think for any uh, any economic theory to be uh, seri- seriously considered as moral, it's going to have to give a lot of attention to the family and uh, the most basic institutions of society, marriage, family, parenthood. Because the economy of what takes place there is uh, is that upon which the larger society's economy is absolutely dependent. Yeah, no, I agree, and 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 even beyond my complete agreement as a Christian and as a family man, I'll back up and go to a lower level, which is as a social scientist. Okay, now one of the things that social scientists like me find again and again and again when we look at the data is that there are four institutions of meaning in people's lives that also are most likely to predict their worldly success, which is to say not earning money. It's their success in creating value and getting on day to day in the world. Mm -hmm. And those institutions are, these are the things that predict success for people's lives the most. They are faith, family, community, and work. Those are not economic concepts. Those are cultural concepts. To the extent that we're thinking and nurturing, paying attention to, working hard on our faith, family, community, and jobs, 
we're going to be better people, we're going to be happier people, and we're going to be more successful people. And this is not just theology or philosophy, because I'm neither a theologian or a philosopher. I'm an economist. I look at data all day long. This is what you find. This is the secret to happiness and success. I loved your reference to uh, Johann Sebastian Bach and uh, the ability to bring in something like Luther's notion of vocation. We're having a very properly ecumenical discussion here. But (laughs) but I I want to tell you that I think American evangelicals are missing a very important intellectual tool. Uh, And uh, and this is one that I talk about a great deal, and it's one that I think you're going to relish talking about, but it comes (laughs) right out of this, and that is uh, subsidiarity. Uh, The the, the notion that if something is broken at the smallest level, it is far more expensive to fix it and far less uh, are we able to fix it at uh, at a greater level. That's right. Subsidiarity is – I mean, you know I love this because I'm a Roman Catholic and Catholics talk about this a lot. Uh, Subsidiarity is the basic concept that you do things at its its lowest level that are closest to the problem. And so this is sort of theoretical. So at this point, it basically says if you've got a problem at the family level, don't try to solve it with the federal government. Don't try to solve it with the state government or the – not even with the local government or the school district or with the neighborhood. Solve it at home first if you can. This is a very important principle because it leads people to flourish the most when you keep things at this low level. And this is an extraordinary thing where the Roman Catholic Church, through many, many centuries of looking at human behavior and looking at human success and happiness, have figured out that this is uh, so important that it's, in, that it's sort of enshrined in the theology of the Catholic Church, this, this idea of subsidiarity. Now, political people like it a lot if, they're, if they call themselves conservatives, typically, because it's pretty easy to take it from there and say, well, government should be smaller. But even forget all of this. What we're trying to do is to empower people. We're trying to give people a sense of power in, over their own lives, control in their own lives, that, so that they're really in charge, so that they don't learn their helplessness, they don't devolve all of their relationships and all of their responsibilities to some higher level of authority. Well, that's one of the problems with the contemporary labels we use. Liberal and conservative are not meaningless in our circles, but they don't necessarily mean what they have historically meant. For instance, I would argue that subsidiarity is absolutely essential to the Christian worldview and, uh, and yes, to a true conservatism in terms of uh, the worldview that wants to conserve the things that are essential to human flourishing, such as yeah, marriage right. and the family, such as community uh, at the lowest level. Uh, because uh, one of the things that subsidiary, uh, that the doctrine of subsidiarity makes very clear is is that as you go, get into larger and larger levels, your effectiveness falls off hugely. And this is where, okay, here's the evangelical quoting Thomas. To go to Thomas of Aquinas, uh, you know, as he made very clear, what what you're dealing with here is the fact that truth subsides at the lowest level possible. The truest representation of the family is the family. Anything that tries then to take the functions of the family beyond the family does so less efficiently, uh, less personally, less lovingly, and, uh, and, and of course, uh, sometimes uh, not well at all. Yeah, that's right. And, you know, I think that everybody, everybody listening to us understands the wisdom of this because it, it rings true. You know, it, we, we know that people who uh, have to solve their family crises in a court of law are the are the most miserable people out there? I mean, it's gee whiz. If you can't get if you if relationship with your wife is so bad that you're letting a judge sort it out, you're, you're not going to feel very good about that. Why? Because you've just for whatever reason had to violate the principle of subsidiarity among other things. It's just it just feels wrong. And so this is something that rings true in a lot of our lives. Don't substitute the government for your family. <laughs> it's the wrong thing to do. But people and, hear us talk this way, Arthur, and what they hear us to say is that we don't care about people. But but the the point is if you care about people, you care first to create and sustain the things that make people flourish. But then in a Genesis 3 sinful world, you do the very best you can to help people whose lives are broken by the brokenness of those institutions or the absence of them. So you have a, a fatherless child, uh, and the statistics are that, uh, that a horrifying percentage of American children uh, live a, a, a horrifying percentage of their lives uh, as children without, uh, without a father in the home. It's it's to say we can't fix that, but it's not that we don't care. That we, we we will simply do the best we can to help, but we can't put the father back in the house. 
Yeah, that's right. And one other thing to keep in mind is that by the principle of subsidiarity, if a family is broken, if their relationships are so badly hurt, or, or in, if, in fact, somebody around us is hurting for any reason, for any lack, for lack of, economics, uh, 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 lack of economic resources, if they're poor, for example, the right level isn't necessarily bringing the government into it. The principle of subsidiarity says go to the lowest possible level. And you know what? That might just be you and me, Al. <laughs> Absolutely. Know, if your neighbor is hurting and, and they can't deal with they can't help themselves, maybe subsidiarity says it's time for you and me to step in with private charity, with every, private help. Every major newspaper that crosses my desk over the last three or four weeks has had an article on how extended family is having to step in in hard economic times and uh, with, with, with uh, people having to move back in after uh, losing a job and all this. And I'm looking at that saying they're treating this as a problem. I see this as the glory of God. That's why God gave us family. And extended family is a, the kinship structure is a very part of the biblical vision. And, and somehow in our mobile atomic society, we've lost, we've lost the vision of that. But this, this is actually why God gave us cousins and aunts and uncles and grandparents is so that we would yeah. have people upon whom we could uh, depend and uh, that's far more efficient. I mean, I'm, I'm not moving in with my state senator, but at some point, uh, you know, I might, I might have to move in with a relative. The, that's an easy choice. Your, your kids are all listening to this saying, what? <laughs> yeah, when I'm listening to him saying, and, and you better grow up and get a job and get out of here. But nonetheless, <laughs> in order to do the glory of God. Uh, exactly and, right. And they are. But, but again, they know, they know, and as you say, this is a moral intuition. It's a moral sentiment. They know that if they got into trouble, they're, they're, they're not going to call, you know, the U.S. District Court. They're going to call me. Uh, and, and my wife. They're going to call mom and dad. They're going to call each other. They're going to call someone that they know loves them. I know. And you know, one of the saddest things when you look around the world today at what's happened in these modern social democratic economies, these places have turned away not just from free enterprise, but from all the concepts that we're talking about here today, Al, is what's happened in their demography. If I look at Western Europe, you find yes. that it's effectively putting itself out of business. The And has Spain been for 30 years. For sure. You know, the average Spaniard by the year 2040 will literally have no brothers, sisters, right. aunts, uncles, or cousins. You know, what does this do to, to our, our, our ability to look out for ourselves, to look out for our kin, to love each other, the people who are closest to us? Does it mean that all of the things that we need for in hard times will have to be provided by strangers? Does it mean that we all have to turn to government? And the answer really is yes, and it's by design. This is Absolutely. where society goes when we don't pay attention to these fundamental principles. Yeah, I'm writing an article and I'm involved in a big research project uh, on this right now, let me tell you, you know, there are, this is not science fiction, there are robots being provided for the elderly in Japan to keep them company. Robots. That's right. That's right. Uh, That's simply right. because they do not have relatives. And, and you look at this and you realize this is, a, this is what every previous generation of human beings would have seen as abject societal breakdown and disaster and heartbreaking tragedy. And, uh, and, and we're just taking it kind of in stride. There are two other words I want to throw at you here. Yep. And uh, the first of them is, is trust. Uh, trust is essential for any uh, thriving moral economy. Explain how that functions. Trust is the, the central concept in something that, that in social science we call social capital, which is basically the amount of trust and social cohesion in a society. And it, the basic point is that societies that function best, societies that function at all, have to have some level of trust. So look, if I don't trust my neighbors, I'm not going to look out for them, and they're not going to look out for me. Uh, I'm going to have to devote a whole lot of resources to make sure that I'm not victimized, and, and they're going to have to do the same thing. Life is simply better when we trust each other, and, and this is one of the reasons, incidentally, that, that free enterprise is such a miracle. Free enterprise fundamentally depends on trust. Now, we need rule of law, and we need, a, we need police force and judges and, you know, restructures of regulation sometimes. But fundamentally, most of the free enterprise system is depending on the idea that if you owe me something, you're going to pay me. You know, if you come and say you're going to fix my roof and I pay you a, and I pay you a little deposit, you're, you're going to come back. And, and that's one of because... the problems with our contemporary uh, economic condition is because many people think that something's capitalism when actually it's, a, it, it's not capitalism. For instance, True free market economics holds that the market itself will punish bad behavior. But sure. we have removed the ability of the market to punish bad behavior, and now we're trying to have government punish bad behavior on behalf of the market. And it looks to me like it's not working very well in moral, much less in legal terms. 
Yeah, sure. I mean, free enterprise actually builds trust and depends on trust. And as such, it's actually helping to to build up a stock of something that you and I understand to be part of a really fulfilling, happy life, trust in each other. Well, absolutely. I don't think we want to live in a society in which, uh, you know, we're afraid at any given moment that our, our neighbors are going to steal from us. That's right. Uh, that our business partners are going to uh, to embezzle from us. Uh, th- those things in a Genesis three fallen world, those kind of things happen. But uh, but if you don't have a basic level of trust, you, you can't you can't sleep at night, much That's less right. uh, function as a as a moral actor in society. The second word I want to throw at you is one I think you're going to enjoy talking about, and and that is that uh, economists I think give inadequate attention to what the Christian worldview actually has really thought about, and that is counterintuitively to what we've been talking about with work and labor, leisure. Hmm. Yeah. Leisure is an interesting is an interesting idea, and it's been basically misunderstood as the absence of work. But basically, the whole idea of leisure is the enjoyment of things that are not, are, are, are not, are, are outside the realm of work for compensation. Um, the truth is that in, in, in in our society today, there's a lot of conflation between work and leisure, and that's not necessarily a bad thing. I don't really know where my fun stops and my work starts or vice versa. I don't exactly know those things. There's some times when I go on vacation with my family where I'm definitely involved in leisure, but it's not clear all the time. The key thing to remember is that the idea of enjoying leisure is a really important principle. I know that you have strong theological views on the, on the, the virtue of leisure properly understood and virtuously enjoyed, um, but it's also important because it, it's so importantly character-forming uh, that, that we're, we're able to work when appropriate and not when we're trying to enjoy the company of others outside the realm of work. It's really, uh, there are whole areas of social science that deal with the subject of leisure. There's a journal of the study of leisure, believe it or not. It's so critically important, as it turns out, for the proper functioning of people. Well, people think when they hear the word of someone sitting on a cruise ship, you know, having a manicure, that, that, that by the way, is not my idea of leisure. But, uh, but leisure, theologically understood, is what we actually do for the sheer enjoyment of it. Uh, we're, we're, not, uh, we're not working for uh, the provision that is a necessary part of our, our assignment, but rather we're working for those things that give us pleasure. And, and, and that means that leisure for many people is, uh, is working in a soup kitchen. It's, uh, le- leisure is, uh, is, is coaching a Little League baseball team. Uh, leisure is actually, w- w- which the classical Christian worldview affirms, leisure is as important a contribution to the society as what we would call work and profession. Because we are unitary human beings made in the image of God, and every part of us is to contribute not only to the glory of God, but to human flourishing. Yeah, every minute of every day, we should be doing something that glorifies God and edifies mankind, if we're properly ordered. And that means that in my leisure time, I'm doing something that's that's glorifying, that's edifying, that's good, that's in, in, in its way productive. And so it's almost a false distinction between work and leisure, except that it's not compensated technically. Uh, and, and another miracle, again, that comes around from, from a system that are, allows us to match our skills with our passions is that you can do something for its own intrinsic pleasure. And then the weirdest thing of all happens. You get paid for it. <laughs> it's extraordinary. Not everybody, not all the time. But this is a, this is a completely modern phenomenon, and, and it simply wouldn't exist. You know, you, think, you, know, you always get this uh, advice when you're in high school. Find what you love. See if you can do it for a living, and you'll never work a day in your life. Well, that's actually a misunderstanding of the joys of work, of course, because it makes it sound like you'll just be engaged in pure leisure. What we, the sine qua non of sort of human happiness, I think, is, being, is not being able to tell the difference between work and leisure. The new book by Arthur Brooks is The Road to Freedom. It's available in your local bookstore. Arthur, what are you working on next? Uh, right now, I'm boy, or oh boy, am I ever occupied on what's happening in the in the election here in the United States? I'm writing a lot of articles in places like the Wall Street Journal. The next book, however, I think is going to be about the subject of competition. I'm really keen to understand this whole subject of cronyism and how we shut down the competition of ideas and how we shut down competition in business and how basically this is leading us in in business, in government, in a lot of realms of life to not compete 
properly understood in a virtuous way. And this takes us toward European-style social democracies, and it takes us toward the model of Greece and Italy and Spain. I don't like where it's taken us, and, and I think we need to get back to the American culture of competition. Arthur, thank you for joining me today for Thinking in Public. Thank you, Alex. I'm a, I'm a huge fan. It's been a pleasure and an honor to be with you. Oh, it's been a delight to have this conversation and to, to share these ideas with others. So much for economics being the dismal science. That was anything but a dismal conversation, the kind of conversation that gets to the most basic issues of human life. And that's where the Christian worldview provides the tools for understanding these things, for affirming the fact that we couldn't possibly be talking about economics without talking about what it means to be human, what it means to be made in God's image, what it means to work, what it means to aspire to leisure, what it means to respect the institutions that God gave us in creation for human flourishing, and what it means to understand our own individual responsibility as homo economicus, as well as homo sapiens. Any discussion of economics has to get to the most basic issues of human life and also has to realize that the conversation that we have about economics in the year 2012 is, at least in terms of the expectations of many people, bracketed by political considerations by a very limited set of political understandings and economic understandings that are the discussion commonly held in the major media, the kinds of economic condensations and and very crude simplifications that you hear on the television talk shows and beyond. That's why a conversation like this is so important, to remind us there are far greater issues that are at stake. And, of course, from a Christian perspective, it's the issue of Christian truth, it's the issue of, of God's glory in creation, and it's the issue of human flourishing. Christians are obligated, because we love God, to love our neighbor. And that means we are obligated to seek for the arrangements that will lead to the greatest degree of human flourishing. And that means that we all have to think in economic terms. We're not just passive actors on an economic stage. We are those who are making, actively making, economic decisions. We are engaged in economic activities. And furthermore, we have a voice in the construction of economic arrangements that have everything to do with whether human beings flourish or fail to flourish, are encouraged to do that which is morally right, or are discouraged, and uh, and then find themselves very much disincentivized from doing what we know that we're created to do. We understand as Christians that we have to reframe everything in terms of the glory of God. And we come to understand that God, in His glory, in His sovereign wisdom, created us as economic beings because His glory is to be revealed in our economic lives as well. How important is it to think about that doctrine of subsidiarity that says it starts at the most local basic unit possible? But our economic responsibility doesn't end there. It extends through every dimension of our lives and of our individual reach. It leads to big questions about how we rightly create and construct society. For Christians, it also gets down to how the church itself as the community of believers functions as an economic community as well, with economic responsibilities, making economic choices, and communally committed to the glory of God and to the extension and enrichment of human flourishing. This is the kind of conversation that many Christians simply never get to have. It's a conversation that is strangely and negligently absent, and one for which we have to take a newfound responsibility. I want to thank my guest, Arthur Brooks, for helping me to think in public today. Before signing off, I want to remind you again about the first annual Expositor Summit, an important conference taking place on the campus of Southern Seminary October 30th and 31st of this year. The theme of this year's conference is Preaching in a Post-Everything World. Please join me along with John MacArthur, Alistair Begg for this annual conference on the campus of Southern Seminary. For more information, visit sbts.edu. Thank you for joining me for Thinking in Public. Until next time, keep thinking. I'm Albert Mobley.